Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. And we're in chapter 11. Today we're looking at the many faces of antinomianism. That sounds ominous, doesn't it? Calling somebody an anti-anything. Anti-vaxxers, you know. Uh, Anti-Americans. Just sounds ominous. And ant antinomianism is a very subtle misuse of the law of God by basically denying any validity to the law of God and uh, proclaiming sort of an absolute kind of freedom. We can all go home now. I told you what it is. But we're going to look at the nuances and faces of antinomianism uh, today as we're continuing our series on Gospel Reset. Uh, don't think we can really understand the nature of the gospel, the power of it, and how it operates in our lives unless we also look at some of the misuses of the law of God. Uh, there's both law and gospel in the Bible, and as we see some of the misuses of the law of God, it helps us understand more deeply the reality of the gospel. So with that said, I want to begin reading in Matthew chapter 11. In verse 16, but what to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. The main point I want you to get from this particular passage is no one ever called Jesus a legalist. No one ever called Jesus a legalist. But here, sure looks like they're referring to him as an antinomian. Also look with me over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And Paul is in the middle of a discussion about how he adapts his style of evangelism depending on the persuasion of the person he's speaking with. But he makes a very interesting comment in the midst of this discussion. And for our purposes this morning, our purpose is not to cover all the comments, but our purpose is to zero in on one. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 9... Um, Paul says the following. To those, excuse me, let's just begin in uh, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not my, being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but look at this next statement, but under the law of Christ. And that is what I wanted to draw your attention to here. Paul regarded himself as being under the law of Christ. Sometimes I think when you talk about a subject, it's probably more helpful in the beginning to define it so that everybody's not sitting there thinking and wondering, what is he talking about? 
because I don't know. And I want to just offer a definition of antinomianism. Uh, this comes from Michael Horton, and he says, literally means anti against nomos in the Greek means law. So an antinomian is a person who is against the law. And the view could be summarized that the moral law given to us in the Ten Commandments are no longer binding upon the Christian. Now, I've already talked about the gift of the law as a gift of grace. I've already talked about legalism, and that is a misuse of the law in either establishing or maintaining a relationship with God. But here, this is the person who says, the law of God has nothing else to say to me. It's done. It's over. Uh, I no longer have to pay attention to it. I just, and there's so many faces of antinomianism. I only talk about three today. There might be 12, but there are different ways people, like here's one for instance. I no longer need the Ten Commandments. I just listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit now tells me what I need to do. Uh, or there's situational antinomianism. I don't need any objective written word to tell me how to behave. I just do what love would do in any situation. That is, love defined as how I see it or understand it. But they're all different kinds of them. But it's a characteristic, uh, generally antinomianism may be seen as a characteristic of human rebellion against any external authority. In this sense, we are by nature antinomians and legalists since the fall, rejecting God's command while seeking to justify ourselves by our own criteria. The modern age is especially identified with a demand uh, for freedom from all constraints. Be true to yourself. Be your best self uh, is the modern creed. The rejection of any authority above self, including obvious biblical norms, is evident in uh, some Christian churches as well as wider culture. Um, in technical terms, antinomianism has referred historically more to theory than practice, but I have met some who are very good at the practice. So let's uh, move on with this because there are three things I want us to see about antinomianism. I'm only going to look at three faces today because I think that will be helpful. And this is not a new thing in the history of the church. It's always reared its head at different times where the gospel has been preached. Um, one of my uh, mentors or one of the people who I've learned an awful lot about the gospel from is Tim Keller. He says this, the power of the gospel comes in two movements. First, it says, I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. But then quickly follows with, I am more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope. The former outflanks antinomianism. I'm more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. And the latter staves off legalism. I am more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope. One of the greatest challenges is to be vigilant in both directions at once because each are rearing their heads to distort or destroy the operative power of the gospel in our sanctification, in our growth as Christians, not only in our coming to know Christ and our justification. Whenever we find ourselves fighting against one of these errors, it is extraordinarily easy to combat it by slipping into the other. Here's a test. 
if you think one of those errors is much more dangerous than the other, you are probably partially participating in the one you fear less. I hate that statement. I hate it, but it's true. The antinomian credo is freed from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. That's what they really believe. A second would, would, would be, and I'm not sure if this is H.L. Mencken uh, or Bertrand Russell, some atheist said, uh, I love to sin, God loves to forgive, isn't the world perfectly arranged? Uh, no. But I, uh, I have found myself struggling with both legalism and antinomianism. And um, I, I think I was talking to... Uh, Mark uh, Anderson yesterday about this subject and I was saying I, I kind of want to bring it down to street level where people can understand it. One of the things we laughed about when I was in seminary at Reform Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi back in the 80s before some of you were born, uh, I was sitting in the halls of learning and I remember my friend leaned over and said to me one day, he said, you know when I became a Christian Jesus took away all my vices. He said, but when I came, became reformed, he gave them all back. <laughs> well, that's not true, but it feels like it sometimes. Here's what I have seen by observation as a pastor for some 40-something years. Here's what I've seen. I've seen people who were converted out of a wild, lawless lifestyle come into the faith and Christianity and all of a sudden become a Pharisee of the Pharisees. It's almost like an overreaction to, I've really been bad. Now Jesus has saved me and I want to be perfectly good. And so there's an intensification toward obeying principles and laws and what have you to where um, it's, it's, it's a knee-jerk reflex. And on the other hand, I have seen people who grew up in the church, maybe whose father was an elder or especially a pastor, and I've said they've been to the services, they went to Christian schools, they lived in this cloistered environment, and once they're able to leave home, baby, do they swing. They go crazy into some sort of lawless lifestyle. I've seen that happen a lot. Why do kids do that? Because they have the freedom, so to speak, that they're no longer under bondage of living under mom and dad's roof, and they're going to go out and do all the things they've been missing all these years that everybody else was doing. That was cool and fun. And so that leaves us in a church where people who are converted coming from one way or the other. But the good news is the gospel delivers us from both. So let's deep dive a little bit into these three points about antinomianism and, and work towards some sort of cure for it because it's a bad thing to have. Uh, Jesus was never accused of being a legalist. I've told you that already. But the issue of antinomianism did arise. John the Baptist lived an abstentious life and baptized penitents. Jesus, by contrast, made relatively few positive references to the law, ignored scribal shibboleths, and on occasion spoke in an almost violent language to the Pharisees. He went to dinner parties with sinners, and he didn't baptize anyone. As his opponents gathered their dossier against him, they were getting ready to charge him with being antinomian incarnate. After all, did he not encourage indifference toward the law of Moses? 
Their carping criticisms against him was set loose to the demands of the law, sailed close to the anti-Sabbatarian wind, and did not keep his disciples in the discipline he should have. So we're confronted here with the, uh, with the age-old problem, does the gospel dismantle the law? And it was a consolation to understand that the preaching of both Jesus and Paul arouses the same questions and criticisms. But antinomianism, like legalism, has many, many faces. And so let's look at some of the strands in the thread. The term antinomian has its roots in the Lutheran Reformation. Luther's early theology and writing, in some sense simply tracked his own spiritual experiences. We know that that's true. On occasions, he seems to have reached his views in the process of writing them down. In particular, the deep sense of bondage he had known, followed by his overwhelming sense of deliverance, left its mark on the vigor of his speech about condemning the law of God. He had very little to say good about the law in his early writings. His basic interpretation grid for understanding the Bible was to ask the question of every passage, is this law or is this gospel? That principle did have some value, but it could easily produce a distortion so that at times Luther seemed to portray the law exclusively as my enemy. It was this concern that his, or it was in this context that Luther's friend Johannes Agricola drew what he thought were the logical conclusions of this radical contrast between law and gospel, the abolition of any role at all for the law in the life of the Christian. He expounded this antinomianism first in his debate with Philip Melanchthon and later with Luther himself. In the 1530s, Melanchthon had began to employ the notion of the so-called third use of the law that the law was a guide or rule for the Christian life. In reaction, Agricola basically rejected any role for the law. He had become antinomian, that is against anti-nomos law, against the law. Although, to his credit, credit, later on he withdrew from this view. While the debate with Agricola was essentially intramural, many on the radical edges of, let's say, the Anabaptist movement went to extremes and that threatened the stability and reputation of the Reformation. This injected into the bloodstream of the Reformed churches a deep sensitivity to and fear of antinomianism. Any theology that saw the law in a poor light was seen as the first domino in a series to fall, leading ultimately to some sort of total collapse. Waves of antinomianism followed of different kinds and degrees that continued to beat the shores of international reform theology well into the 17th century and beyond. For now, our purposes, or for our purposes, the simplest way to think of antinomianism is that it denies any role of the law in the life of a Christian. Its big text, somewhat paradoxically, is Romans 6.14 where he says, You are not under law, but under grace. In contrast, our confession of faith thought that while the law is not a covenant of works for the believer, it nevertheless functions as a rule for his life. Let me explain what that means when I say rule for life. 
When we look at the Ten Commandments, for example, as a moral rule for life for us as believers, I've told you before, it's like guardrails on a, a mountain road that protects you, that leads you into a pathway that will cause life to flourish for you. But that law is not the way you establish your Christian life by obeying it, putting God in debt to you so that he gives you what you deserve, and that is heaven and salvation. But rather, the law becomes for you your friend, your guide, your attitude, your heart toward the law changes, and you begin to see it as a gift of God, and you want to be obedient to it. So being under grace does not mean you have nothing to do with the law, but rather you, you have a whole new delight in it as a way to express gratitude and love to our gracious Father. So we've seen this, we've talked about this already, but uh, let's look at some of the theological, and I know it's taken me a while to get here, but we'll do it really quickly. In view here are theologians who hold that the law of God is abrogated in its entirety for a believer. There was a time in my life when I was a Schofield Bible fan. Some of you don't even know what that apparatus is. But it was a Bible that had been edited and uh, had, had cliff notes sort of written in the margins and at the bottom of the page by a man by the name of uh, Thomas Schofield. And Schofield was a sort of part of the Brethren movement and eventually moved in to be the father of what I would call ultra-dispensationalism. And he looked at the Bible this way. The law had to do with Israel and only Israel. Therefore, the Sermon on the Mount, the Ten Commandments, anywhere in the New Testament where the law is addressed and spoken about has nothing to do with the church. It only has to do with Israel. Therefore, we don't pay any attention to it. Now, dispensationalism today has progressed, thanks the Lord. There is something called progressive dispensation. And dispensationalism is like a pair of glasses through which you look at and understand the Bible, its message, and how everything works. And I believe it's an error for a number of reasons, but I love dispensationalists. Some of my best friends are dispensationalists. I used to be one. So they love the Bible. They love Jesus. They love salvation by grace. But they have a way of misunderstanding the third use of the law. That's a modern, more modern misuse of the law. But back in the day, um, historically, there have been others who were sort of uh, into the same concept that the law has been abrogated in its entirety. Although in one sense, antinomianism is the opposite error from legalism, in another sense, it is the equal error, for it simly, similarly abstracts God's law from God's person and character, which undergoes no change from old to new covenant. It fails to appreciate that the law condemns us for our sins, was given to teach us how not to sin. Moreover, it would hardly do to say that the law is irrelevant because believers are now indwelt by the Spirit, the commandment remains holy, righteous, and good, Paul tells us in Romans 7. Furthermore, specific exhortations of the new covenant lead to the fulfilling of the old covenant law. And so, there's been, always been a great fear 
among those who are really strong on justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that if you insist in any way a Christian is related to the law, therefore you're smuggling good works in the back door and destroying salvation by grace. That in itself is a fallacy. And so, uh, those who have been justified uh, by grace alone, uh, through Christ alone, through faith alone, now have a new relationship to the law. The no lo law no longer becomes that which condemns me through the Spirit at work in me, writing the law of God upon my heart and showing me the relevance of the law of God in my life. That law now produces in me a love that God calls for, a love for him and for one another. Now, let's look at some of the biblical faces of antinomianism. We have talked about it, and I just want to make a quick um, venture into this just for clarification. We've talked about the three forms of the law of God or the threefold division of the law of God that we see. Um, and so there is the ceremonial, there is the civil, and there is the moral law of God. This goes back way in um, church history. The notion that there was distinct ceremonial law has now been fulfilled and abrogated. Civil law that governed the people as a nation that has now ceased to function since God's people are an international community. And the moral law, the Ten Commandments, uh, are what we now have. And so the threefold division of the law in that regard tells us that we are under the grace of God but still accountable and responsible. Our freedom is not freedom to do as I please, not freedom to do as I want, not freedom to fulfill myself, but the freedom I experience from the law is really a new bondage, a bondage to Christ and His law. His law is that law which has been transformed through His coming. He's fulfilled all the ceremonial law in the Old Testament, Secondly, he's fulfilled, the civil law has been fulfilled now that the church is international. So the moral law, the Ten Commandments, still has a binding force. But there have been people and preachers and teachers throughout church history who have denied any relevance of the Ten Commandments to our lives. Some people like to go to the Gospel of John when John says the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The relationship he sees, that is John, between grace and law is not antithetical but rather complementary. Christ's ministry, grace and truth reality, fulfills Moses' ministry of law, shadow, and type. This is further elaborated by the verbs John employs. The law was given, but Christ came. And when in Romans 16, Paul affirms that we are not under law, he is not denying that the law continues to be relevant. He had been accused of precisely this, but already in Romans he stressed that rather than overthrow the law, the gospel functions to uphold the law. After all, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And since it is holy, righteous, and good, and spiritual. So the new covenant in Christ establishes the law not only externally, but internally, okay? Not just outside of me, but also inside of me. Christ 
died, the scriptures say, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Holy Spirit. This is thus what the uh, author of Hebrews calls becoming obsolete that is, of the Old Covenant, is held hand in glove with the affirmation of Jeremiah's vision of the New Covenant. Listen to him, Jeremiah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The citation is repeated. Given the emphasis the author of Hebrews places on these words, we're surely bound to ask the question, which laws are written into our minds and on our hearts? The most obvious answer is what other law would be the first readers of the epistle to the Hebrews understand but the Ten Commandments? And since the author of Hebrews reaches... Uh, teaches that the ceremonial patterns of the Old Covenant have been fulfilled in Christ, he couldn't have meant them. And since Hebrews was written to those who know, have no lasting city and therefore no longer see themselves as citizens of a state with its capital in Jerusalem, they are no longer people governed by the civil regulations intended for life in the land. And so, the Ten Commandments, therefore, still... Uh, are applicable and needed for those of us who are in Jesus Christ by faith uh, under the new covenant. Um, and so the uh, most important thing to understand is that the biblical, theological, redemptive, and historical perspectives have a great deal to do with how we look at and understand the law of God, but the law of God, and my point under point two, is from the biblical data still in effect. Uh, that is, the Ten Commandments are still in effect. That is what fills in the blank of what love looks like. Love is, is not empty of content. It is empty of content if we don't go to the Bible and see how it defines what love lo looks like. And we know that the first four commandments define what love toward God looks like. And we know the last of the commandments, uh, five and on, describe what love looks like to our neighbor. And so when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's talking about the first four commandments. When he talks about Loving your neighbor as yourself, he's talking about the last six commandments. And so those have to do, have um, authority over us, even though we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, one of the great essential principles that every person needs to understand, is that the Spirit and the Word of God are not enemies but best friends. It is always the Spirit taking the Word and working upon us. The Spirit takes the external Word and reveals it to us and changes us internally, inside. And so as I preach God's Word and you sit under it and you listen to it, there is that dynamic of the Holy Spirit taking the Word and creating in you what the Word calls for. He creates in us repentance. He creates in us faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And as the Spirit takes the Word, He works life into us. But He still uses the law of God. 
And as I've told you, the law exposes our sin. It shows us how much we need Jesus. It drives us to, to Christ. It shows us that we cannot rely upon ourselves. The fundamental message of the Bible is we're all a mess. Every single person sitting in this room, breathing air that has a pulse, is a mess, according to the Bible. The Bible doesn't flatter us. It doesn't put backlights behind us. It doesn't give us halos. It shows us who and what we are. And it's not a pretty picture. In creation, we were beautiful. In creation, we were the image of God. We were not marred at all. We possessed uh, original righteousness. We had a heart for God. We worshiped Him. We loved Him. We wanted Him. We loved uh, one another. However, as a result of the fall, there has been a tremendous destruction wrought upon the image of God. It's marred. It's not completely gone, but it's marred. And we're a mess. And we can't extricate ourselves from this mess. We cannot save ourselves. And so we cannot use the law to save ourselves. The purpose of the law is to expose to us our sin. It's to show us our ugliness. It's to show us our uncleanness, our unfitness to be in the presence of God. And it's to create in us a desire to run, not away from God, but to Him, to Christ. But after that occurs, the law then becomes for us a guide for life. I think if Luther and Calvin had ever met and they discussed the third use of the law together, I think Luther would have come around, although in some of his later writings he was there. But the argu argument was, why do we need the law of God? And Calvin argued, if I, never, if I as a Christian never sinned again, I wouldn't need it. But I'm a sinner and I still need it. And so the issue there is, is that the law exposes us, continues. The second use of the law doesn't happen once. It continues throughout your Christian life. And it generates in us a love and appreciation for and a gratitude toward Jesus for bearing our sin and taking away our judgment and giving us his righteousness. But just because he's given us his righteousness is, is a misunderstanding if we think that's all I need God doesn't really care about how I live now that I have the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. Now that when he looks at me, he sees me through the lens of Christ. He doesn't see my sin. Well, that's half the story. The other half the story is when God saves me, he not only does something outside of me, he gives me a legal forensic standing that I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when he looks at me, he delights in me. But there's another thing going on. The same people who are justified by faith, that faith also brings about, through the Holy Spirit, granting to us repentance and faith, regeneration. We become new creatures. And new creatures in Christ Jesus, there is, from the point of justification onward, a growth in obedience and righteousness that is internal inside of me. And so the law is very necessary for that. And so to be an antinomian is to miss, it's a splendid exercise in missing the point. And, and I think that that's where a lot of people find themselves. I could say a whole lot more. I want to get to the third point where I talk about the practical effects of antinomianism. What does it look like in a person's life? 
the extent of fear and concern about antinomianism in the 17th and 18th centuries can be measured by a comment by the New England minister Thomas Shepard. Here's what he said. Those who deny the use of the law to any that are in Christ become patrons of free vice under the mask of free grace. Antinomianism of that order had manifested itself on the margins of nonconformity, but clearly the concern was that any aberration from orthodoxy, that is right praise or right faith or right belief, there's an inbuilt domino effect so that the doctrinal and biblical antinomianism would eventually swallow up the whole Christian church. At one uh, level, it's important for us to understand that uh, it's, it's easy for us to miss the real heart of antinomianism. Uh, for the deepest response of antinomianism is not that you're under the law, but rather this. You are despising the gospel and failing to understand how the grace of God in the gospel works. There's no condemnation for you under the law because of your faith union with Christ. But that same faith union leads to the requirements of the law being fulfilled in you through the Spirit. Your real problem, antinomian, is that you don't understand the law. It is that you don't understand the gospel either. For Paul says that we are in law to Christ. Our relationship to the law is not a bare legal one, coldly impersonal, but rather our conformity to the law is the fruit of our marriage to our new husband, Jesus Christ. That would be found in Romans 7, 1 through 6. Practical antinomianism has many forms today. One of them is the secular gospel of self-acceptance. Next Sunday, I'm going to preach on what I believe is the biggest gospel distor distortion that we are currently seeing in Western civilization. And it is moralistic, therapeutic deism. I want you to see how that has not only been a secular point of view, but has found its way into the church, moralistic, therapeutic deism, and how it has shaped the gospel in many ways. But the, there are many forms of it today uh, since God, it goes something like this, since God accepts me the way I am, I ought not to get straight-jacketed by the law of God that God, what God wants me to be really is just myself, authenticity. And this has very concrete expressions uh, in what are described as lifestyle choices. This is who I am. This is how I am. God is gracious unlike you if you disagree with me, and he accepts me as I am, and therefore I will remain as I am. At one level, the problem is indeed rejection of God's law, but underneath it lies a failure to understand grace and ultimately to understand God. It is true his love for me is never based on my qualifications or preparation, but it is misleading to say that God accepts us the way we are. He accepts us despite the way we are. He receives us only in Christ and for Christ's sake, nor does he mean to leave us the way that he found us, but rather to transform us into the likeness of his Son 
and without transformation and new conformity of life, we have no evidence to point to that says we are even His in the first place. At its root, antinomianism separates God's law from God's person and grace from union with Christ in which the law is written in the heart. In doing so, it jeopardizes not simply the Ten Commandments, but it dismantles the truth of the gospel. I can remember uh, some of my, my Christian friends who I would regard today as antinomian, hopefully they are no longer, telling me that a Christian could still be cool. You could still, I mean, you could, you could still be a really cool person and be a believer. And a lot of the seeker church movement at its core seems to propagate that idea that we, we're not nerds. We're not these weird Christian people. We're not these people who are from another planet. We're not, a, um, self, you know, we're not the church lady wagging our finger at everybody. We're not um, some, I have to tell you, if you're sitting here in this church today and you're a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, any person who's not thinks you're weird. They, th they don't think you're cool. They think you're strange. As a matter of fact, they may even hate you. And they will persecute you. And so this idea that somehow I can be a Christian and still maintain my coolness, in my opinion, borders on antinomianism. I can be another version of the world, only better because I don't sin as much as they do. And I'm nicer. But, but antinomianism is very subtle. But what I want you to see is when we talk about the law of God, on the one hand, we cannot use the law as the instrument to make ourselves right with God. That's a misuse of it. To use the law to establish or create or accomplish or achieve righteousness with God is legalism. To use the law and my obedience to it is the reason why God ought to bless me as a Christian and thinking that I can put him in debt to me and he will owe me a good life, things should go well for me because I'm trying to be an obedient person, is another misuse of the law. But so is, so is disregarding the law altogether. Let me put it to you this way and we'll be done. A genuine believer in Jesus Christ, someone who has looked outside of himself and has trusted, relied upon with all of his being, who Jesus is and what he's done for us. His perfect life of obedience, his death upon the cross, receiving in my place the curse of the law for disobeying it, his resurrection to the right hand of the Father, conquering death, the law, and sin, uh, telling me that the Father has accepted his work, and the sending of the Spirit to the church, which opens my eyes to see it and believe it. What once became threatening to me, what once became... Uh, what once to me was sort of an antiquated view of looking at things, what once I regarded as a straight jack, jacket, the moral law of God I now see as beautiful, and the heart of a genuine Christian wants to be, in every case, 100% obedient to and responsive to the law of God. Amen or oh me? Well, that's a, hard, uh, that's a hard message to preach in one sitting, but I hope you got the general overview. Now, do I think antinomian is a problem in this church? As long as the flesh is in us, 
as long as our fallenness is still present, and as I understand it, it is, then it's always a threat for all of us, every one of us. Pastor Tim, have you ever been antinomian? Why, sure. Have you ever taught antinomian? Probably. I didn't mean to, but I probably did. Do I hate it now? Absolutely. Have I ever been a legalist? Yes, I have. Confessing. I was the most self-righteous person. I one time did this, and I closed with this. I promise. <laughs> I sat my wife down, and I, I was feeling rather magnanimous. Thought I was doing a really good job of loving her, being a husband, you know. I had a high view of myself. So I asked a question that you should never ask your wife as a husband. I said, honey, if there's just one thing about me, just one thing that you could change, what would it be? And this sweet little southern belle who hardly raises her voice looked at me in the eye and said, it's your stinking self-righteousness. I can hardly bear to be around you sometimes. <laughs> I said, well, that's enough. You don't need to point out anything else. <laughs> you know what? I've never asked her that question again, and I won't. But what it was, it was a it was an arrow to my heart. Because both antinomianism and legalism are self-righteous and self-centered, and are destructive to relationships. Very destructive. That's what's wrong with some of your marriages. That's exactly what's wrong with it. It is inimical. It is destructive. It sucks the life out of relationship because it's so selfish. But thankfully, after 40, it'll be 42 years in December, she's still with me. And I hadn't heard a lot about self-righteousness lately, but I'm sure it's still there. What about you? Where do you stand? Please realize the law of God has much to say to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for helping us understand the role of the law in the life of a Christian. We know there's a lot of confusing dogma out there regarding this very issue that uh, churches, in an effort to become more uh, approachable and more relevant to the culture, uh, have lost this edge of the truth. And this truth is offensive. It's offensive to the fallen heart. Nothing is more offensive for me to hear than I can't save myself. And I must look outside of myself for a real Savior. So Lord, we pray that you would grant to us much of the Spirit to take out of this what we need to see, hear, and respond to. Father, as we continue to worship you now, we want to give to you as those who are filled with gratitude and to give with a certain amount of hilarity, a certain amount of joy, because we know that you uh, are one who loves us beyond what words can say, and we thank you for your unspeakable gift. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.